over the past several weeks, we have been in a sermon series where we have been looking at um, some of the main attributes of God. And we could just stare at, at her all day. Um, that's me being partial. Um, we've been in a sermon series called God Is, and we have been looking at the main attributes of God, the kinds of attributes that God exhibits through Scripture as he interacts with people. And so we've talked about how God is loving. We've talked about how God is self-sufficient. He needs nothing to exist. If he needed something to exist, he wouldn't be God. Uh, We've talked about how God is good, and we've defined that. Uh, We've talked about how God is holy and how God is generous. And so uh, we still have several to cover, but today we are looking at how God is glorious. So if you did receive a bulletin when you came in, you can open it up and and, uh, pull out the little fill-in-the-blank sheet, jot some things down, fill in some blanks, write your own thoughts as we kind of go along this morning. But if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm chapter 19, and we'll get there in just a few minutes. If you use the YouVersion Bible app, you can pull that up, or you can just read with us on the screen this morning. Um, The word glory... And so today's, sorry, I didn't even mention the title. Today's title is God is Glorious. God is Glorious. And so we're going to help you understand what that means. The word glory is uh, used in our culture in a variety of understandings. Uh, It's used in movies, uh, Blades of Glory, if you ever saw that Will Ferrell comedy movie. Uh, I did not. Uh, But uh, songs, um, books, Athletic events, the term glory is used quite a bit. Michael Jordan's career was glorious. Uh, Franco Harris's immaculate reception in the 1972 AFC Divisional Playoff game was glorious. If you don't know what I'm talking about, YouTube that. Franco Harris, 1972, AFC Championship game. Amazing. The immaculate reception is what it was called. That was glorious. But in church settings, we also use that term glory to refer to several different things. We use it in our sermons. We use it in our songs. We use it in our statements. You'll hear maybe some Christians say, well, I'm just living for his glory. And we're like, okay. Uh, so we, we sometimes maybe struggle to understand exactly what people are referring to. What, what are they meaning when they say that? We sang this morning, our very first song was Glorious Day about being saved from our sins. And so we even quote scriptures about God's glory, but do we understand what it means when we say that God is glorious? Well, the reality is that the word glory is almost indefinable. If if someone asks you to define a basketball, you could define that pretty easily because it's a material thing. You could say, well, it's round, and it's, it's like a burnt orange, and it's got lines, and it's bouncy. But if someone asks you to describe beauty, if someone asks you to describe glory, it's a little bit harder of a concept in order to describe. And so when we talk about God being glorious and having to try to communicate what does that mean, we have to understand that we are finite beings trying to explain and define an infinite God. And even uh, Merriam-Webster's dictionary struggles to define glory. It actually gives us five different definitions of the word. So for the purposes of our understanding today, we could say that glory refers to God's majesty, his honor, and his distinctiveness over all of creation. And so that last thought, 
that God's glory makes him distinct and unique is what we're going to focus on today. The main concept, and and this is your first blank in your little fill-in-the-blank sheet, the main concept I want you to take away from this message is this. God's glory means that nothing can compare to him. God's glory means that nothing can compare to him. Well, since God created everything that has ever existed or presently does exist, then he is distinct and he is unique from his creation. Now, this idea isn't that hard to understand because uh, does a painting compare itself to a painter? Does a piece of pottery realistically compare itself to the skilled potter that crafted it? The creation is lesser than the creator because the creation didn't exist without the power, the authority, and the ability of its creator. So let's look at what King David wrote in Psalm 19 to help us understand this. He said, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So David is expressing that when you look up at the stars, their very existence demands that there must be a creator. The stars and the planets are actually singing. When NASA sent a radio telescope into space, before it took off into its its long journey, they turned it around and pointed it at Earth. And what they discovered was that Earth is making a music that actually reverberates into space. Every day, all day long, these planets and stars are pouring out their voices to the distant reaches of the universe declaring through their own existence, there is a God. There exists someone who has the ability to create and place a ball of fire in the sky and to create planets and moons to orbit each other. Our planet, Earth, is the only planet in our solar system that was created to sustain life. We may yet be able to terraform Mars, but Earth was designed for our life. Earth is one of nine planets, and yes, I'm including Pluto, because I was really bummed out when they demoted Pluto and they didn't call it a planet anymore. So for the purpose of today, we're including a dwarf planet, Pluto. Earth is one of nine planets in this solar system that that orbits a yellow dwarf star. And our sun is so large that it comprises 99.8% of all mass in the entire solar system, including all the moons, all the planets, all the comets, all the asteroids. Our sun is just one of 200 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. And our galaxy is one of over 200 billion galaxies, all each with billions of stars and planets and moons inside each one. Now, currently, the planet that we inhabit, Earth, is spinning on its axis at about 1,000 miles an hour. 1,000 miles an hour. It is hurling through space, orbiting the sun at 67,000 miles per hour. 
And our solar system is orbiting the Milky Way galaxy at 500,000 miles per hour. And yet, your Fitbit doesn't give you any credit for all that distance traveled. That doesn't seem fair. Now, we might think, aren't we all just a product of evolution and the creation through an accidental universe? No, I don't believe so. The Bible says, never says that, and I don't believe that science could ever prove it because I don't believe that it is true. There is absolutely nothing accidental in the formation of our universe, of our galaxy, of our solar system, of our planet, or even in you. You can research for yourself the topic of fine-tuning in the universe, but I'll give you a couple of examples, and there are dozens and dozens more. First, if the strength of gravity was any stronger than it currently is, it would pull all the atoms in the universe into a big ball. There would be no life on earth because there would be no earth. There'd be no sun. There'd be nothing. If gravity were any weaker, the expanding universe would have distributed atoms so widely they would have never gathered into stars and galaxies, thus no life on earth. Gravity had to be a perfect constant value for stars, galaxies, and thus planets to form and for the ability for life to flourish. Second, we look at carbon. We are carbon-based life forms. We breathe in oxygen. We exhale carbon dioxide. And planets, uh, I'm sorry, plants use carbon, they use sunlight to convert carbon dioxide into oxygen. Aren't you so glad you paid attention in science class? Well, if you didn't, it didn't matter. You're getting it today. Plants use sunlight, as Gideon would say, photosynthesis. Photosynthesis, they convert carbon dioxide into oxygen for all of us to breathe. And so carbon atoms are actually formed in the core of a star through fusion reaction. Three helium atoms collide and form one carbon atom. And the only way this works is if the energy levels have, uh, they have to be matched up. And the strong and the electromagnetic force have to cooperate perfectly, or there is no carbon atom formed, and if there's no carbon atom formed, there is no carbon-based life form. We look at atoms. Number three, an atom has a, remember, proton, neutron, and electron. Very good, very good. When one atom joins another atom, they make what's called a molecule. And the protons and the electrons work together to hold the atoms together. If the ratios of the mass of the proton is changed just a small amount, the molecule is unstable and the atoms will not bind. And I know you're probably sitting there thinking, this is not the Easter sermon I was expecting. You might think, who cares about atoms and molecules and uh, you know, protons and electrons? You should care because if those atoms don't bind, molecules are not formed. And if molecules are not formed, DNA does not exist. And if DNA does not exist, you don't exist. You have DNA. You have the genetic code that makes you unique only because the mass ratio of protons 
to electrons is fixed by an intelligent designer who has unlimited knowledge, power, and authority, and the ability to create you and to sustain you. If earth were any closer to the sun, the water on this planet would boil. The ground would be scorched. There would be no life on earth. If the uh, earth were any farther away from the sun, the water and the land would freeze. There would be no life on earth. If the moon were any closer, it would cause high tides akin to hurricane-type swells that would flood the planet. There would be no life on earth. It would also cause the earth to rotate faster, which means you would get less sleep and have to work more. We're, so we're glad the moon is where it is. Don't come any closer. But if it were any farther away, the tide would recede so low that almost all ocean life would disappear. If our planet did not have the perfect amount of hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, and carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, there would be no life on earth. You would not exist if every single thing were not perfectly tuned. Now, I know that's not what we were taught, possibly in our high school science class. They taught us that life was accidental, that evolution is responsible for life. They taught us that after the Big Bang, this planet somehow became ideal for carbon-based life forms that just miraculously began through their own willpower. An amoeba was like, hey, I'd like to drive a car. And so it just, no, I'm just kidding. But we understand that, that when you really get down to it, when you really begin to study it, that that concept makes as much sense as a painting painting itself as a car building itself, as a sweater knitting itself. Things are not created unless an outside force with the ability and the authority and the power chooses to create them. I believe that this is my opinion. It doesn't have to be yours, but it's my opinion that the subversive purpose of evolution is to try to explain life without God. If a scientist doesn't believe that God exists, then God is not the source of life. And therefore, the scientist must figure out how to explain life, not just on this planet, but in the entire universe. And yet, when you study absolution, uh, when you study, not absolution, when you study evolution, I believe it is nonsense. And the reason I believe it is nonsense, and if you hold this view, I apologize. Um, you came on a rough day. Um, the reason I believe that evolution is nonsense is because it is statistically, uh, the, the likelihood that this process could happen apart from an intelligent designer is so astronomically small that it is almost not quantifiable. To give you an analogy that would put it into somewhat of perspective, if you took War and Peace, which is not any longer the longest book ever written, but it is a very long book, and War and Peace has 570,000 words. It's a really, really thick book. If you t- uh, 587,000 words, I'm sorry. If you took every letter that made up those 587,000 words and you cut each letter out of War and Peace, you would have a big bunch of letters. And if you threw them up in the air, the likelihood that they would 
fall to the ground perfectly aligned with the way Leo Tolstoy wrote War and Peace is the same likelihood that creation could happen through chance. It is statistically so minute that you can't even really put a number to it. But if you could, it would be ten, uh, 1 times 10 to the 39th power. That's 1 with 39 zeros behind it. That's a whole lot. And, and so another uh, author put it this way. They said, basically, it's the likelihood that you could have a, this, this may sound, hopefully this doesn't sound, you know, weird or anything. But, but they said, basically, if you, if you had a, an office full of chimpanzees with typewriters, the likelihood that they could bang out one of uh, Shakespeare's plays, just one in its entirety, is the same likelihood that the universe could begin by accident. Now, they may be highly intelligent chimpanzees, but they're working with typewriters trying to churn out at least one of Shakespeare's plays. And that is so minute, the possibility of them being able to do that. So another author said, basically, you know, if, if the likelihood is 1 times 10 to the 39th power, that's billions and billions, billions of years. Okay, so that's not billions of years, it's billions and billions of billions of years. And one guy said, the universe didn't have that long. From, scientists tell us that the uh, universe has only been around for 12 billion years. And if the universe didn't have long enough for it to form by accidental processes, then this changes everything. Calculations done by scientists consistently show that 12 billion years is not long enough for even a single enzyme to develop by chance. And so this guy, he continued, he said, in other words, something other than chance is pushing this universe. For traditional scientists, chance was their salvation. Chance was their God. Chance would explain it all. Chance plus unending time would produce the universe, but they don't have unending time. So their God fails them miserably. Their God is dead. Chance is not what explains the universe. But our God, our great and glorious King, is alive and well sitting on the throne. He has defeated every enemy. Even death, which is what we celebrate today on Resurrection Sunday. He's not some theory. He's not something we just read about in a history book that lived at one point and died. We believe in him because we have experienced him. We have seen him work miracles. We have felt his hand upon us. We've heard his voice call out to us in the darkness and save us from our sins. Nothing escapes his knowledge. Nothing happens without him first knowing about it. Nothing is created apart from him. Not in any moment in all of eternity past was there something created by chance. It was all created for his glory. Psalm chapter 8 verses 1 through 3. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set into place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? 
When you think about how incredibly huge our solar system is that we live in, how complex, how amazing it is, it makes you feel really, really small. We live in a universe with a supreme being that lacks nothing. He is completely self-sufficient. He is glorious. He is majestic. If he wants something, he just calls it into existence. Psalm 33, verses 6, 8, and 9 say this, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the Lord of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. There is no question in the minds of the Christian. God created the heavens and the earth. It was God that created all the matter in the universe, all the laws of physics, all the finely tuned methods so that your life could exist. And because he created you, that means that your life has a purpose, that you were created for a destiny that you will only achieve when you acknowledge him as your creator. Our glorious God created everything for his glory. But understand that every planet, star, moon, galaxy, and nebula pale in comparison to the most glorious thing God ever did when he sent his son Jesus from the throne room of heaven to be born into humanity. Jesus, the son of the living God, was born to bear the weight of our sin that we might know true, unflinching, unconditional love. Jesus' death on the cross is a fixed point that split time and humanity. Jesus' death on the cross didn't just split a calendar. It bridged the divide between God and mankind. One of the most amazing statements in all of the Bible was written by Paul when he said, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait until he, we were worthy. If he had waited until we were worthy, he would have never died because we could never be worthy of his death. He died while we were yet sinners. Before I loved God, he first loved me. He suffered and he died for you. When you comprehend a love like that, you feel incredibly unworthy. And that's when God reminds us that the right standing we have with God is not because we ever deserved it, but because we so desperately needed it, and he had a way to provide it. We marvel at creation, and we know that creation, the stars and the planets, they're actually singing back to their creator, yet our song, our song of the redeemed, is piercing the sky. Our song resounds past sun and moon and hurtling toward the heavens, exalting our God with words like this, to God be the glory, great things he hath done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life, an atonement for sin, 
and open the life gate that all may go in. O oh, perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, to every believer the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes, that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Verse 3 says, Great things he hath taught us, great things he hath done, and great our rejoicing through Jesus the Son. But purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our transport, when Jesus we see. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory. Great things he hath done. To God be the glory. <clears throat> not for our glory. As the psalmist reminds us, not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory. To God be the glory. This is our song. Are you joining your voice with this chorus? God's grace is more glorious than every star in the universe. And if you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, do it today. Right where you're sitting. Right where you're sitting. Just say, Jesus, I believe that you're the Son of God. I believe that you died for my sins, that you rose from the dead. I look to you, Jesus, as my Lord and my Savior. And the most important part of that is I deny myself. I take up my cross and I follow you. We've talked a lot about that phrase that Jesus said to his disciples. And a lot of people within Christianity have gotten it backwards. They want to follow Jesus without denying themselves. They want to follow Jesus without taking up their cross. Jesus made the statement in the correct order. Deny yourself. Only then are you able to take up your cross. And only then are you able to follow him. I encourage you, whether you have been a Christian for five seconds or for 50 years, thank God for his glorious and amazing love and grace that spans time and eternity. That reaches from heaven into our hearts. I encourage you. If you can, get out of the city sometimes so you can see the night sky. Look up in wonder. Let it remind you that our God created all of those things for his glory. And that we are the first generation to be able to see some of these amazing things that he has hung out in the sky light years away. Previous generations couldn't see them, but we can through our technology. We can see some amazing creation by God. And it shows us the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. I'll ask our worship team to come up. I'll ask our ushers if they would please assist us in communion. As being a part of a, as being a, a Christian, we are commanded by Christ to partake in what's called the Lord's Supper, which is a memorial to the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. 
You do not have to be a member of this church to take communion with us. You just need to be a member of the body of Christ. And so if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I encourage you to take communion with us. Uh, When you receive the bread and the juice, just hold on to them, and we will take them together. Communion, or the Lord's Supper, reminds us of the day before Jesus went to the cross. He gathered his disciples together for this, their last Passover meal. Passover was the time that they commemorated God's salvation of Israel from Egypt's slavery. The Jews would take a lamb without defect and they would kill it and they would place the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their home. And when the angel of the Lord passed over their homes in the land of Egypt, anyone that did not have the blood over their doorpost lost their firstborn son. But anyone who had the blood of the lamb covering their doorpost was saved and delivered from destruction. Jesus celebrated with his disciples for the final time, and it had to be a very emotional event. In this final Passover, Jesus was about to become the very last Passover lamb who would save not just a household, but the Passover lamb who would save the world. And so when we take communion together, we remember the incredible price that Jesus paid for our salvation, for the forgiveness of our sins. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth the instruction concerning the Lord's Supper. He wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he said, For I received from the Lord what I also, to, uh, what I also delivered to you, that the, night, the, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When we take the bread, we actually are taking matzah bread, which is the bread that Jesus would have used. This is bread with no yeast in it. This is the bread they were commanded to bake back in uh, when they were slaves in Egypt, the night of Passover. They didn't have time to let it rise, and so they baked it without yeast. But this process does two things to the bread. They have to pierce it, and when they bake it, it has stripes on the bread. And so when we take this bread, we remember three things about it. First, it's without yeast. In, in Scripture, yeast is symbolic of sin. And it is striped and it is pierced. And so when we take the bread, we remember the body of Jesus Christ. Paul continues, he said, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Scripture tells us repeatedly that there is no covenant without the shedding of blood. And so when Jesus was going to establish a new covenant, there had to be blood shed. And this blood was the blood of Jesus Christ himself so that our sins would be forgiven and covered. Would you Stand with me this morning. Let's pray, and then we will take the elements together. Father,
We thank you for the body of Jesus Christ and symbolized through the bread that we're holding. We thank you, Lord, for the sinless life that he lived, that he was a perfect example, that he was able to bear a tremendous punishment for the healing in our bodies. And so when we take this bread together, we remember that by your stripes we are healed. We thank you, Lord, for the healing that we have, that you sustain us. And one day you will call us home. But until that day, Lord, you sustain us. You touch our bodies. You heal us. And we thank you, Lord, for the miracles we've experienced in our own church as well as in our own bodies, in our family members, Lord, the miracles that you have done, the miracles of healing. And so we pray, Lord, for those that are sick, that are here today, God, would you touch them and heal them. Minister your healing power in their bodies. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Take the bread together. Let's pray over the cup. Lord, we thank you for this cup of what it represents, the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you loved us so much that you were obedient unto death, that you willingly sacrificed yourself so that our sins could be forgiven and covered. And so we pray, Lord, that if we have any sin in our life, Father, forgive us of our sins. Cleanse us from our unrighteousness. Don't take your Holy Spirit away from us, God. Create in us a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within us, Lord. We will mess up. We will make mistakes. We will sin. We will fail. But our desire, God, is to pursue perfection. Our desire is to be more and more molded into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so help us, God, as we live this life to be examples, to be disciples of you. We thank you, Lord, for the blood that covers our sins and cleanses us from all of our unrighteousness, God. That when you look to us, you see the blood that covers us and you declare us righteous. We thank you, God, for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Take the cup together. When you're done, feel free to pass your cups over to uh, the end. Our ushers will come by in just a moment to collect them. You may be seated for a moment. 2,000 years ago, this very Passover weekend, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He took the punishment that you deserved. He took the curse of sin upon himself so that you could freely receive God's gracious and glorious salvation. But that wasn't the end of the story. We have a video we're going to show you real quick. Lord Jesus, we exalt you. We thank you, God. We thank you that death could not hold you. We thank you, God, you have no rival, you have no equal, that forever, God, you reign. So we exalt you, God, and we ask, help us, God, as we live for your glory. Help us exalt you in everything that we do, that this week, God, let us be uh, encouragement to those we come in contact with. Lord, do something on the inside of us. Minister to us and minister through us, God, for your glory. Help us take this message of the good news of Jesus Christ to those we come in contact with. And let us live with resurrection mentality in mind. That from this point forward, once the resurrection has taken place, everything changes. We thank you, Lord, for death giving way to victorious life. Be exalted, God, in everything that we do. Be glorified 
in everything that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.